So, this, this morning we're, we're, we're going to look at Revelation 3, and, and Dan asked me to preach while, while he was going to be in Florida so he could relax a little more, and, and I started thinking about what, what do we need to hear, what do I need to hear personally, um, and, and quite honestly I had about six ideas of what I wanted to do, and I started writing a different sermon and came back to, to, to this. Um, because this is where my heart was instead of what I was starting to write. And, and again, this is something I need to hear as much as anything else in, in my relationship to the church and how I am to be as a member of the body of Christ. And Facebook, and it's all-knowing, all-infinite wisdom that knows what I want before I want it, and knows what I like, and spies on everything that I do. <laughs> I was watching a news clip on Facebook the other day, and... An old clip of John Christ, uh, Christian comedian, often has some funny satire about the church, came up. And so it, it, it flowed into the next one. It was the one where he was sitting in his parents' house late at night, and he was doing, going through Google reviews uh, of churches. And, and it's really funny to watch him go into this rabbit hole as he keeps clicking through these things and finding these things to critique and then ultimately clips it together. And, and some of them were good things that a church should hear, like the people weren't friendly. No one, no one came up and talked to me. That's a good thing for the church to know. That, that should be a critique that, that we as a church should, should take to heart if that was us. Some of them were just completely ridiculous, like three stars, the paninis weren't good. <laughs> wow, who, who cares? One of them was just completely hilarious. It's like a guy who got what reviews should be. Of He went to the church of no walls. And then he pointed out that everywhere he turned in the church, there were walls. So he felt the name was, was very misleading. And then he got into some of the ones that were, you know, you know, worship and the songs didn't move me this morning. He's like, oh, really? Yeah, let's go tell the people in China that the songs didn't move you because it's illegal for them to worship there. I'm sure they really care about that. And then one that the seats weren't comfortable. And he's like, oh, when you get to heaven and you meet the early church members from Rome, they're going to be really sad for you that the seats weren't comfortable because every time we went to church in Rome, guards came and took us all to prison. So please tell us more about how the seats weren't comfortable. You know, they're really going to feel that for you. And it got me thinking again about how consumer driven our society is and also in church. And I thought of the reviews that were, that were in the Bible, specifically those in Revelation 3. And I'm sure many of you have read that. And there are seven reviews to churches that were in Asia Minor. There are a couple of churches with only positive things said about them, which is great. So Christ has given them five stars. There are some that have mixed reviews. And then there's one that has nothing positive said about it. I think it's one that if Christ could and would use the star system, he would find a way to give it negative stars as a church. And in fact... We'll see this in this passage, but the reason I want us to look at the church in Laodicea today is I see so many characteristics of the modern American church. And that's why I've entitled this, The Church That Locked Out Christ. Now, as a bit of background, I want to make this side note because I want to answer some of the things y'all might be thinking as I say this. I, I, as I prayed, I do believe in the church. It's the way God has chosen for his people to work at this point in history to represent him here. However, I do believe as a church, we have to take a hard look at ourselves. We need to take a hard look at ourselves individually, and we need to take a hard look at ourselves as a church. And we spend so much time critiquing what the world is doing out there 
and saying, oh, look at all this is going on, when we don't take a hard look inside. This is not aimed at any particular church anywhere in the country, here in Little Rock. This is the church in general. It's not a denominational thing. It's the church of Christ. But that's a denomination, but it's not at the denomination. At times, this message may sound like I'm veering towards legalism in some people's minds, saying, okay, here are things the church needs to do better. Or that I'm advocating, okay, we'd be less strict, and we just let love guide what we do, and as long as we have love, it's okay whatever we do as a church. But neither of those things are true. And I hope that I make the point that what I'm emphasizing is grace, and that the goal of the church is grace and getting back to Christ. And that is the central theme of this. Um, one quick aside, some of you may have been taught, as I was taught, that these seven churches represent seven stages in church history, and we know we're in the Laodicean era because this is the last church and we're at the end of the age. I don't think that's true. I would argue completely against that because it puts an American Western Christianity on a spin in Revelation 3, and uh, 1, 2, and 3. Actually, And so it makes us forget that there's a global church out there. There's churches in developing nations. And so we've put our American spin on what this passage is. So I'm picking this one not because I think we're in the last stages of church history, but it's one that I think applies to us. I do believe that this letter is written to save people. Uh, commentators uh, are split on this. Um, but I'll get into that a little bit. But I think the whole of the letters... And in chapters 1, 2, and 3, point to the fact uh, that this is a new group of Christians, and I'm not going to spend any more time really arguing that view. I believe, finally, that the American church, I think we could break it down into three flaws. One, it's a church that has cold, dead religion, has legalism, and it lacks joy. Number two, we have a religion of love and acceptance but we have no obedience to Christ. And number three, we have an obedient church that loves God, but we're proud. And we look at the things we've done and we say, aren't we a good church? And all these problems are addressed in this passage, and these are the things that I want to try to bring out as we go through this. Now, to set this historically, John is writing this around 90 AD during his exile on the island of Patmos where he's, where he's been sentenced. And a lot has happened in the 60 years since the time of Christ. Uh, Rome in 60 AD had the great fire that was under Nero. The Christians were blamed for this. Significant persecution. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, and the emperor Domitian came and led uh, from 81 to 96 AD in Rome. And it was one of the worst periods of time of Christians in the history of the church. And I, I would encourage all of you to read chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation at some point in your time. And chapter 1 is especially majestic as it presents Christ and his glory as he's standing in the middle of these seven golden lampstands and is telling John what to write. But in the scripture that we're about to read, I want us to look specifically at the church in Laodicea. You have this on your handout if you have your Bibles, Revelation 3, 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and this is the basic form of all seven letters. It starts with into the angel of the church of right. And then it always ends with he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So this follows the same basic pattern. The first thing I want us to look at is the announcement to the church. We see the letters written to the angel of the church, and I won't get into the debate of whether this is an actual angel that was over the church or whether it was used in more of the sense of angelos as a messenger of the church. However, this was an actual physical letter that was given to the church. And we know these words came from Christ to John, and it's definitely, I think, worth spending a few moments on how Christ actually describes himself in this passage. First, he describes himself as the Amen. And it's the only place in Scripture where this, use, this word is used to define Christ. And many people point to Isaiah 65, 16, where Yahweh is called the God of truth. And it uses a closely related Hebrew word meaning truth, affirmation, or certainty. And this is something that is inherent about Christ. It's who he is. His character is firm, fixed, and unchangeable. This just refers to his person, who he actually is. Second, he identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. Now, these are related in that the Amen refers to who he is in his person, but this title is in reference to what he does. These words seem to recall John 14, 6, where John is quoting Christ, and Christ states, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All of his words and works are accurate. They're sure and reliable. What he does will come to pass, and what he desires will be accomplished. And third, he calls himself the beginning of God's creation. The Greek word for that is arche. We may think of this as archetype, meaning source or origin. Sometimes our English translations seem to indicate that, that Christ is a beginning, such as being firstborn. But it's, it's the opposite. The word prototokos means there, uh, actually means um, that it's the preeminent one. Um, Colossians had a when Paul was writing there, they had a, a heresy that indicated that Christ had a beginning. And he addressed this in 1, 15 through 17, where it's talking about he, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before him all things, and in him all things hold together. And some commentators feel that this heresy that was spreading around that time in Asia Minor was the cause of some of the problems of the church. So Christ is both the source of creation and the one who's preeminent over all of creation. Second, we have the accusation to the church. This is where we'll really spend the most time in what Christ says about the church. Now we need to talk a little bit about the city of Laodicea and get an understanding of the city since that greatly impacts the next few verses. All of these accusations and illustrations that Christ uses directly relate to the history and geography of the city. 
Laodicea, as we talked about, was one of the seven main churches of Asia Minor, and it's located in western Turkey. It was specifically one of the three cities in the Lycus Valley, and it made a triangle that was about six miles north to south and about ten miles west to east. So in the northern part, we had Hierapolis, which was known uh, for its bubbling, mineral-rich hot springs, uh, which we can identify with being in Arkansas. To the southeast portion was Colossae, which was known for its cool and refreshing water. So both of these were destinations that people wanted to go to. And then at the other point in the triangle, we have Laodicea. Now Laodicea was several hundred uh, feet uh, on a raised plateau, which gave it significant protection. Some historians had called Laodicea impenetrable as a city to try to get up there to it. But its main vulnerability was that it had to pipe in its own water supply. And it did so in the valley through some of the water coming from Hierapolis and some of the water coming from Colossae. And, and you think about it, hot water coming through um, a six miles north-south, it loses its heat. Water coming 10 miles from the southeast, it loses its coldness. So as the water came into the city, it was lukewarm. And traveling that distance through the aqueducts and the tunnels and some of the things that still exist today, it ended up being kind of foul, stale water. And so, and so that was it, its main vulnerability. But it was a rich city. It ended up at a strategic point in all four points uh, of, the, of, the, of the geography at that time. It had a famous banking center, and the great Cicero uh, was said to have had an account uh, there. There was a devastating earthquake in the city in 60 AD, which is about 30 to 35 years before this was written. And history tells us that the city was so wealthy that they rebuilt the city themselves and they refused any assistance from the Roman Empire. And so this was a source of great pride uh, for them. Several other things that stood out was its sheep had this soft, luxurious black wool that they could get from it. And so this was a major source of exports from that. A nearby temple uh, had an ancient medical school. And one of their most famous things was this ISAV that was exported all throughout the empire. And so you're seeing these things come together, the water supply, the richness, the clothing, and then the ISAB that was there that we just read about. So with, the, with these things in mind, I want us to look at the charges that we're giving there. I know your works. You are not hot, cold, or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and either cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, some of you, and, and this is the way I, I grew up being taught this past, may have grown up hearing that God wants you to be hot. God wants you to be on fire for him. Be all in for God. Or... Okay, if you're not on fire for God, just be cold and uncaring, just forget God. Because at least that way God knows where you are. What God doesn't want is he doesn't want you to be apathetic. So either be all in for God or just forget God. And I never really understood that. Why would God want you to say, okay, just forget it. I'm going to go be a cold Christian. I'm not going to be apathetic. But when you think about these things and the geography and the water supply of the city, it really starts to make sense what this passage is saying. To the north, you had these healing mineral properties of this hot spring, which was good for something. And the Colossae, to the southeast, you had these cold, refreshing waters, which was good for something. So when the water came into Laodicea, it was lukewarm, it was stale, and it wasn't really good for anything like the other waters was. So what God is telling through an illustration of the water supply is, you're, luke, you're useless, just like the water that comes into you. 
If you're hot water, you're useful. If you're cold water, you're useful. But just like your water, you're a worthless church. Your works are foul, stale, and useless to anyone. In fact, your works are so rotten, like your water, it literally makes me sick. And the word used there is, I want to emeto you out of my mouth, like an emetic, something that you'd have to make you vomit if necessary. So God's saying, be useful in your works. Hot water I can use, cold water I can use, but you change your ways so that you can be useful to me. As I said before, there are distinct ways that a church can be useless, just like the water supply to this church. One is a church that has a dead, stale religion, a church that lacks love and lacks grace and is focused on legalism. Another is a church that has abandoned its convictions in the name of love and has started to compromise its faith, thus portraying and diluting the gospel of Christ. Yet another is a good church that is proud. And what all these things have in common is they don't show an appreciation for grace. Their actions don't honor grace. It's because they don't understand grace and what grace has done for them as a church. One way I envision this, and I think this happens all over the city, all over America, all over the state, is this is the church that people come, they listen, and they walk out every Sunday after the sermon and after the singing, and people walk out unchanged. They have all the rituals, all the trappings that go with religion, but they do nothing. They're stale, stagnant, and spiritually dead. It doesn't matter if you wear suits and go to a church that has choir robes and an organ, or if you go to a church where people dress in ripped jeans and have a loud rock band. Now, I, I do believe this is a saved church, as I stated earlier, but this is a saved, saved church that is really doing nothing worthwhile. They don't serve, they don't give, they don't love, or their lives are no different than anyone around them except they do the church thing on Sunday morning. Second, Christ says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, and poor. Here Christ is evoking the pride and the wealth of the, of the city. They think they are a great church in a great city. And since most of these churches met in houses, uh, they think they had it going on. They took the attitude of the city around them. They said, we were destroyed, and look what we did on our own. Look how much we accomplished by ourselves. But Christ looks at them and says, whoa, wait a minute. No, in my estimation, you're poor, wretched, and pitiable. Your wealth means nothing to me. Now, there isn't in anything inherently wrong with nice churches. But I'm going to pose the question, when is enough enough? Does the church need to continue to build palaces to attract crowds when it's called to minister to those around? Perhaps we've gone too far in satisfying ourselves in our houses of worship that we build for God. Have we become houses of worship to our own accomplishments and Christianity? Mm. Third, you are blind. You don't see your own spiritual condition and the needs of others around you. You're famous for your eye salve, you're blind, but you're blind to what you've become. Mm. You don't see me, you don't see my glory, and you don't see what I have for you to accomplish in your own city, much less the surrounding world. It's a church that wants to have outreach, but lets someone else do it for them. They don't, they don't see the call to serve, even in their own church. We're the people who roll up their sleeves for the gospel. Not just the social needs, so that is very, very important. But at the same time, use that ministry to speak deeper to spiritual needs. Serving Christ is hard. In pride, though, they think, they think they're impressed by what they do, but Christ isn't. 
Christ says, you think I'm impressed that you love but don't obey, but I'm not. Christ says, you think that I'm impressed by your theology and how good it is, but you don't serve. And I'm not impressed with that at all. Finally, he tells them they're naked. You may have the finest black wool that is coveted all throughout the world around you. In fact, you may wear it, but that means nothing to me. If you could only look at your spiritual condition, you wouldn't see fine garments. If you could, <clears throat> you would see the ugly truth of what you really are, and that's naked. Mm. Do you know what's sad? It's often the people, the more liberal churches, as we would call them, sometimes just wrong the theology, who are the most faithful and serving in 2019. Mm. And we sit in what we think are our fine clothes and judge them in their theology. But so what if our theology is good and our service doesn't? Mm -hmm. If it doesn't go from our head to our heart? Mm -hmm. Just like that wool, Christ sees how naked we are. There are lots of people with poor or absent theology who are doing what we should be doing mm -hmm. in the world. Let's follow Christ and do what he says and what he wants us to do. And maybe, just maybe, the world around us would get a glimpse of light into the love of Christ mm -hmm. and the true gospel, and we could share that with them. Christ sees our nakedness, and you know what? The world sees it too. Mm. Third, the advice given to them. <clears throat> Again, Christ is going to use the same uh, imagery and tell them how to return from a dark, dead spiritual state. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, <clears throat> and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. So how do we reverse a dark, dead spiritual state? Well, we return to Christ. We take hold of his work, his righteousness, and his identity. What Christ does not say here is just as important as what he does say. He doesn't say, do better, try harder, follow this guideline. He instead directs them back to the source of true righteousness and spirituality, which is himself. Acknowledge that we are spiritually poor and empty, and Christ will give us pure gold. Recognize the dark nature of our sin and come to Christ with pure garments of white and cover ourselves. Turn to Christ in our blindness and he will give us spiritual sight. In the church today, we don't need another sermon. We don't need a new book. We don't need a new retreat. We don't need anything new. But we need to take a hard look at our spiritual condition and get to the source of grace, which is in Jesus Christ. We can't try harder or do more. We need to get back to Christ. And I would say we've lost the essence of Christianity, which is Christ himself. Why does the world look at the church and see deadness? Because it often is. Mm. It's not a place of refreshing waters of grace that overflow in love. Again, it might be sickening legalism and judgment. It might be a church that has abandoned the gospel altogether. It might even be a good church that has become proud and thinks that it has it going on and let's give ourselves a hand for Jesus. We're proud of what we built in America, but we've forgotten that we didn't do any of it, that it's all come from Christ. And I'm not picking on certain services again, but maybe our services have gotten so us-centered that the critiques of the world that we are empty, pitiable, and naked are actually true, and we become too blind and stubborn to actually look at it. So how do we get back to where we need to be? Well, we need to get out of the way and get to Christ. What would a church like that look like? It would be a church that is focused on loving God and loving others. A church that understands what grace means to be loved by God and to be loved by others. 
John says in his uh, gospel, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, what is the example of love? How God loved us in giving everything. Now, does that come with directions of how we're supposed to love God? Well, it does. Again, John, writing in one of his epistles in 1 John 5, 2-3, says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So do we get to make up how we love God? No. John is sick this morning, so I can pick on her. Uh, until she listens to this. But John and I, we've been together almost 12 years now. And so there are ways that I know that Jonna wants to be loved. Um, she does not like chocolate. So if I decide, okay, I'm going to love Jonna by bringing her chocolate, is that really loving Jonna? If I go around and I flirt with other girls, is that loving to her and just go up to her and say, hey, babe, it's all love, so it's okay? I, I can love you how I choose. But no, because I love her, I choose to love her in the way that she wants to be loved. But if I do all the things for her that I know she wants to do, bring her the things that she wants, say the things that, she, that I know she wants to hear, but my heart and my soul and my emotions aren't in it, is that love either? In Galatians 5, Paul exhorts the church not to go back to the slavery of the law or the works of the flesh. In verse 1, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So living in sin and living for the law, both are yokes of slavery and bondage. What is truly freeing is that which he lists in verse 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That is what a life looks like that has received grace and that has received God's love. Those are qualities that you can't produce no matter how hard you try, but you won't succeed. So what does that look like in a church? Is it a church that lives according to God's standards? Absolutely. But does living up to those standards define God's love? No. Love isn't just about actions. It's about the heart. If we understood this, we would be people who would stop trying to earn more favor from God by doing more. That's just exhausting. It would be a church that would find a balance of love and obedience. It would be a church that would be humble. We're saved by grace. We live by grace. And a grace-filled life is marked by love for God. Love produces obedience to God. And after that, it just flows naturally. We'll go through this last two points fairly quickly, but the aim. And here's where I would back my claim that this is a church of believers, not an unsafe church, as some would argue. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Christ loves the church. He gave himself for the church. He wants the church to be made in his image. He wouldn't make that statement to a gathering of unbelievers. The letter to Laodicea was giving them a chance to repent. It is a letter of correction to point out their ways and to call them to repentance. We hear the term repentance a lot, but what does it mean? And Dan said this earlier. It means turning around, changing a mind, changing a direction, and going back to Christ. It means saying no, whether no to sin or no to a cold, dead religion, and saying yes to Christ. There's the initial act of repentance at salvation, but when we get off track, we repent and we turn back and follow Christ. Grace allows us to do that. 
And so fundamentally, grace or repentance is turning from ourselves back to Christ. One thing I think it needs to be clear is repentance isn't, okay, here are the steps that I need to take to go back to Christ. That's the wrong order. We go back to Christ, mm. and then everything else will follow once we turn our focus and our attention back to Christ. We don't do the right things first. We go back to Christ, and in grace, everything else will follow. Mm. And then finally, the appeal. Final paragraph in that passage says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. There are several interpretations of what that means, whether it's an evangelical model or a fellowship model and, and so forth. But I find the, the fellowship model of that fits best here, meaning that Christ wants us back. He wants us to unlock the door and let him back into our lives. He wants someone, anyone in the church, to let him back where he's supposed to be. And that's at the center of the church, because we're the ones that have left him out. I think much of the church has left Christ out. Maybe we got so busy being Christians that we forgot what the gospel is and what grace means. What is the result of letting Christ back in? It's fellowship beyond compare. Meals were highly important culturally during that time, and they still really are today, to get aside from the busyness and get to know each other. And it's interesting that the last thing that Christ did with his disciples on earth was have a meal with them. And it's one of the ways that he's asked us to remember him on earth until he comes. And we do this through the Lord's Supper. So we come to a table, as we're going to do shortly, and we fellowship with him. Yet again, the sign of the fellowship that Christ longs to have with us. The letter to the churches ends in the same formula as the other six. He that has an ear to hear, let him spirit, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And just before that, a promise is given uh, to one who conquers, or in some translation states, overcome. And from each of the seven, just really quickly going through these, we'll eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We won't be hurt by the second death. We'll be given a hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one know, knows except the one who receives it. Authority over the nations with a morning star. Our name won't be blotted out of the book of life when we give in white clothes. Our name confessed before the Father of the angels made a pillar in the temple of God in the name of God written upon us, and be granted to sit with Christ on his throne, as he also conquered, and sits down with his Father on the throne. And I don't, can't quite comprehend how any of those things are possible. We don't deserve any of that. We deserve the opposite of all that. But we are overcomers because Christ overcame. In John 16, when Christ is talking about what will happen in the future, and just before his high priestly prayer, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Well, how do we become overcomers just as Christ overcame? And again, John answers this in 1 John. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? A life of faith is how one overcomes. It isn't through striving harder or just living a moral life of love. It's a life of faith. <laughs> now, faith is a battle. Blake mentioned last week, and we often pick on doubting Thomas. And we often feel the same way. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. In a world and in a church that has lost its grounding in Christ, 
and in many cases has become more like unbelievers in the world, our faith will be tested. But faith is how we overcome and receive the promises contained in those seven letters to the churches. It's how salvation has always been, by grace through faith in Christ. So my final question this morning is, have you or have we as a church locked out Christ? Are we living in the prison of a cold, dead religion? Or are we still living chained to our sin? Christ has set us free from both of those. Maybe you've never let Christ in at all. He loves you, and he wants to free you from that. Wherever you find yourself, unlock your heart, and by grace through faith, let Christ into your life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank that you, that you love us more than we can imagine. You loved us before there was in us, before there was a world, and you created us to share your love. And though we live in a world marked by sin, we live in a world marked by chaos, you still love us and you've given us a chance to overcome in this world. I pray that if we're cold and dead in our religion and we're proud, or if we're living in sin, just thinking that if we do simple acts of love that we're acceptable, that we would turn from that and that we would put you right back where you need to be in the center of our lives. Help us to unlock the door of our lives, of our churches, and let you back in. In Jesus' name, amen.